Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Rana Faruhar, a correspondent at the FT and a longtime friend of INET. Obviously, you've been on this podcast previously, and it's nice to have you back again in this turbulent world. No doubt. Turbulent and hot. It's going to be a long, hot summer, I fear. <laughs> well, we're coming out of the uh, acute concerns, not not an understanding, but the acute concerns of lockdown, at least in the United States, though in other places in the world, things are still very difficult. But I think all kinds of other anxieties are now filling the void. They're coming to the surface. They've perhaps been bottled up while we focused only on the medical issues. But all kinds of things follow together. They're what I'll call disruptors. Mm-hmm. And there's the question of governance. Mm. And, I, and how we put this all together, I'm anxious to learn from you. I read your two articles, one in Swamp Notes and one a feature in the FT this morning on the yeah. internet monopolies and their governance. Uh, our dear friend Jim Balsilli, you cited. And... Uh, in your piece, and uh, Jim, obviously, going back to the very first meeting in 2010, has been a founding partner of INET, and he and the Center for International Governance Innovation are coming up on their 20th anniversary, and uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to celebrating them yeah. and looking for the next 20 years as well in partnership. But at yeah, well, any rate, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of torn whether I want to start with big tech or tech or New York City. And I, I think I'm going to start with the latter, kind of go a little micro and then build out because, you know, you talk about coming out of the pandemic and I'm sitting in New York. I know um, uh, you're in the in the country at the moment, but you live in, in Harlem. Um, I live in Brooklyn. I'm starting to see and and just kind of feel a little bit of what the next few years or and the challenges of the next few years are going to be like. And and let me just give you an example. Um, the 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 part of my neighborhood in Brooklyn um, uh, that is sort of still gentrifying, you know, has still afford some affordable houses. The pr- housing prices have gone up during the pandemic by forty percent. So you are seeing a huge housing bubble in areas where there used to be reasonably affordable housing where people could be, you know, commuting in if they needed to. You're also seeing all these incredibly hollowed out areas in Manhattan. I just came through Hudson Yards. I mean, I don't know who's paying for that, how much they're losing. Um, it's. I think that there are just these extremes that are starting to, to emerge. Um, and all of that underscores not just monetary policy right now, but the last 40 years of monetary policy that have smoothed out the business cycles, but have also created some, some real imbalances that are nearly impossible for central bankers on their own to address. So that's just what I'm seeing walking around my neighborhood. I'm also seeing a tremendous amount of social and political anxiety, things like um, uh, police reform. You know, all that was happening pre-COVID 
Now, post-COVID, as um, stimulus payments run out, as people start to, you know, really start to feel the pain that we knew was coming, you're seeing rising crime rates, you're seeing police that are um, both overworked, in some cases overdeployed, but also incredibly anxious about, about what their role is. So this is just, um, I really feel like it's a very 1970s-ish kind of moment culturally in this city. And that really underscores, you know, exactly where we knew we would be coming out of this pandemic, more uh, inequality, an entirely two-tiered experience of the last 18 months. I mean, some of us, like you and I, have been at most, at most inconvenienced in a rather minor way. Uh, and other people have been in, totally devastated. And we haven't even gotten into the developing markets yet and what's happening what's happening there and what will happen as the geopolitics of, of vaccine nationalism and um, and and the one world, two systems um, paradigm kind of start to fall out. So um, the one thing I am hopeful about, I know that was a lot, but I'll, I'll just say I'm very hopeful um, that over the weekend we saw movement towards this big G7 deal to put a base, um, a floor on, on global taxation on corporations. That is such a crucial piece of what is needed to build back trust in governance, which is what we need to do pretty much anything else that we're going to be doing. Um, you know, Biden's just put out a four trillion, not just, but you know, the $4 trillion stimulus package. Um, some of us think it could have been even bigger, but he has to sell it. Well, a very good way to sell it is to say, hey, we're going to get global corporations um, that are rich in intangibles, which are really the, the only kind of wealth that matters at the moment, uh, to pay their fair share and not to, to play some kind of regu regulatory arbitrage and move it around. That not only addresses some of the inequality and capital labor imbalances that are underscoring all this tension, but it starts to get at a, can the U.S. still be a leader? Can it be a country that anybody wants to look for as a model? You know, one of Biden's goals has been to create um, an alliance of liberal democracies around things like tech, tax, trade. So this is, this is something I'm optimistic about. It's a, it's a, good, it's a good move. Well, even if New York City is not particularly encouraging, or at least there are profound dilemmas, and even if the North-South problems are problematic, there is some enthusiasm I'm sensing around Europe after being in Trento this week about this G7 uh, cooperation across governments related to a minimum corporate tax. Yeah. Yeah, it's so important. Um, you know, I, I actually argued as soon as Biden came into office, I argued that the first thing he should do from um, a foreign policy standpoint, and in some cases, a you know, really an economic standpoint, was try and get a transatlantic agreement around digital tax, trade, um, and tech regulation. This is taking on that piece of tax um, at, a, at a bigger level, and it's so important for a couple of reasons. One, as you well know, the vast majority of corporate wealth is now existing in intangible assets like software, IP, data, et cetera. That is so easy to move across borders. There's just It's just very, very difficult um, for governments to keep track of this stuff, and there's a race to the bottom, and so that's why it's so important to get a baseline on this. Second reason it's important is Biden is, of course, trying to sell this $4 trillion infrastructure program, which is really what... America needs to kind of bolster not only the fundamental things that make the economy run, but trust in government 
trust in government, you know, things like rural broadband, things like um, uh, putting a floor under childcare and, 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 you know, really starting to see human capital as a, I hate, hate to even say the word capital, but to see human beings as assets rather than costs on a balance sheet, that's all super important, not only for the economy, but for trust. Now we have a way to pay for that. So if we can get corporations to pay their fair share and not have a race to the bottom globally, we can use that to invest in the things that the public sector needs to invest in. And then the third factor is it starts to give a little bit of a hope to the rest of the world and to Europe in particular, I think, which is the Europeans are still very skeptical about the Biden presidency, um, that they can look and say, all right, maybe the U.S. can lead again. Maybe it can develop some sort of a global alliance of liberal democracy based on values. That's very, very important because a lot of my European friends, particularly in places like France, just sort of feel like we're not going to try that hard. We're not going to make that extra push because we're just going to end up with the next Trump in four years. And I guess uh, there's, there is a sense, particularly with regard to climate change, that we all have to work together now. <clears throat> the example that came up in the context of Trento when I was talking with Mike Spence the other day mm -hmm. is uh, you have a situation in a, Africa, where it's an equatorial region, there's no better place to put solar panels. But if Norway wants to build solar panels and be dark all winter, uh, they can <laughs> do it for about 1% real interest rate. And all the insurance companies yeah. and pension funds, everybody will storm in. In Africa, it costs about 8% more. And, yeah. but the real question underpinning this is if Africa gets it right with solar, when the International Office of Migration is expecting the African continent to have a population of 5 billion people by 2075, we will all get to keep breathing. So don't we know, get, yeah. don't we now <laughs> understand that that risk premium is putting us at risk? If they don't deploy well, it, it, the, the solar panels? 100%. And I feel like climate climate is both the most vexing problem, but also if there is a silver bullet to get us to the next phase of, um, of capitalism, of humanity, I mean, the climate change possibility is it. Just a couple of other, you know, win-win situations that I could imagine. Um, Right now, and we've talked about this before, we've got this one world, two systems paradigm where China has its own set of rules and its own system. The U.S. has one, Europe has an, another. They're sort of in alignment, but not entirely. But that's not going away. We're not going to head back to the mid-1990s here. Um, Europe is sitting in between the U.S. and China on a number of issues. So just look at the, the EU-China trade deal that was done recently or the way in which German exporters are saying, you know what, we don't want to um, do anything that's going to close off our access to the Chinese market. This is our future. So putting, making, um, you have to choose between China or the U.S., the issue is not going to win over Europe, but making climate change the issue and saying, hey, let's put a price on carbon and let's really hold China's feet to the fire on that too. I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing that starts to, you start to get um, real leverage. 
just in the U.S. as well, I see a, a lot of really interesting bedfellows coming together around climate. So I did, um, last year I got involved with a group of uh, Navy scholars that were looking at the, the um, defense and, and strategic arguments for moving ahead and trying to really do some investment in, um, in high growth, clean tech, green batteries, things like that. Um, lots of reasons for it, I mean, for the, for the military industrial complex, but, but lots of reasons for it from a national um, security point of view in economics, because you're actually creating real jobs. Um, you know, you're moving ahead in areas that China would otherwise dominate. I looked at a lot of the things that they wanted to do and how they wanted to invest, not just in these technologies, but in vocational programs, in the communities that um, could potentially be re rebuilt in the Rust Belt to sort of supply some of that, uh, that technology and work. This is all stuff that could be coming from the left. I mean, this is AOC, Green New Deal meets um, Biden infrastructure. And so, so there's this real interesting kind of far right, far left overlap that you're beginning to see around some of these some of these things, and I find that very heartening. Well, I uh, get a big grin because a couple of years ago, before the pandemic, my father had uh, been very, very romantic about the Navy. He was there in uh, for about four years in the 1950s, and. Uh, because of some public speaking or whatever, I got introduced to their Distinguished Visitors Program and I was invited to go on the aircraft carrier called the Nimitz oh, off, wow. off about 70 miles off the coast of California. So they put me in one of those little jets, fired up and landed on the deck with the tail hook. Oh my God. Wait, how fast do they stop? Is it is it as bad as it looked? Like yeah, you're, you're, yeah like... you're, you're strapped in, so you're not going anywhere. You're not bouncing around, but it's... It's the, yeah. the, what they call the G-force is enormous. Yeah. And, uh, and so I went through that and then I spent about four days and they gave me a tour, meeting the commanding officers, visiting all the different platforms and everything else. And what I experienced, and by the way, this, I put an asterisk on it right now. I am not necessarily saying that what we do as a military industrial complex is the highest and best use of our public purse. But what they did given that mission structure with mm -hmm. 4,200 people living on that aircraft carrier at one time was such a heartening experience for how they yeah. treated each other. Yeah. Seeing yeah. young black and Hispanic women in the intelligence control room teaching me yeah. things that blew my mind and seeing yeah. white guys in the dining room, happy to serve everybody and seeing all these young people feeling like because they put their faith in the Navy, the Navy was gonna help them evolve as citizens, professionals, and people. And, and I just said, we gotta, we gotta do something where we take this model yeah. to other sectors about how people treat each other. But like you said, it could have come from the left. AOC would have had tears in her eyes if she'd seen how well these people were treating each other. Well, indeed. And, you know, it's, I, I completely agree. I mean, my um, my brother was a Navy Navy nuke and it, it um, uh, he dropped out of college, joined the Navy. It was an amazing experience for him. Um, but what I see is this is a community. OK, what is it about that works? It's a community built on values, Right. It's not a sort of a financialized system. I mean, the places that many of us live, values um, are sometimes not the, the first thing that motivates people. Um, 
but this is this is a you get into this business because you believe in something you know rightly or wrongly it's a values based system they also have a lot of expertise in teamwork and logistics and resilience and i actually wrote an article recently i was calling for a resilience czar to sit in the white house because um for my next book which is about the post neoliberal world and how it's going to shake out i've been doing a lot of uh, looking at this trade-off that we've had in the last 40 years between efficiency, which is you know the neoliberal, laissez-faire, globalized you know way of doing things, and resilience. And okay, so what is that trade-off, and and how do we see it? And I've done a lot of work in agriculture, and it's really interesting. I mean, of all the things that all the problems in the economy that agri that uh, COVID really kind of pulled the scrim up on, the agricultural sector is really front and center. I mean, the, the minute the pandemic hits. Okay, you've got every restaurant in the world empty, but you've got people, you know, farmers throwing out their harvests, dumping their milk because there are two highly concentrated supply chains that do not talk to one another, that are owned by two or three companies, um, n none of which have software that speaks to to one another. Um, you know, all all kinds of issues, and. Um, and at the same time, you think about, well, even before that, we have um, a, a federally funded USDA program to pay farmers uh, to grow crops that are basically fed to cattle at a time when we're trying to make a transition to green energy. I mean, it's just you start to dig and you see that there's a complexity problem here. There's a systems, a complex systems problem. And so and you could you could talk about the, the colonial pipeline. You could talk about uh, PG&E. You could talk about. Um, any number of, of, of you know financial crises, and now with the Internet of Things, the digital and the physical connecting together in systemic crises, and so we don't have um, a lot of people that think about complex systems and resiliency, and about having not just Plan A and B, but C, D, E, and F as well. But the defense guys do, and I think it would be really interesting at a time when. You know, we're getting out of um, big foreign wars, but also the nature of warfare itself is changing. It's just it's not about people on the ground. It's about cyber. It's about um, drones. I think there could be a tremendous opportunity to start to rethink using the defense budget, but also kind of um, human element as almost like a national service corps, you know, like let's help create some resiliency at home. Let's let's and you know that's a doctrinal pro you know doctrinal problem because that's not something typically that um, you don't you don't see the military being turned to national uses. But I, I just think there's a tremendous amount of resourcing there that that could be deployed creatively. I want to uh, how I say invoke another experience that I had vis-a-vis -vis the military that you brought to the surface. About 15 years ago, I worked on making a documentary film called Taxi to the Dark Side with Alex Gibney. And while it was primarily about the use of torture and the scapegoating of soldiers who were given orders to perform forced interrogation, uh, it was a dreadful film. It won the Oscar for Best Feature Documentary, which yeah. uh, you know I'm surprised because it wasn't it wasn't a happy story. But within that process of some of those soldiers being on trial and JAG officers and going to Annapolis and particularly going to West Point, and given my history as having worked in the hedge fund industry and worked in the United States Senate. 
They got all kinds of little, what I'll call, sidebar conversations about the problem in this country is that we don't have values. We came to West Point. We're not getting rich. Now, there are retired generals and admirals who become lobbyists for Silicon Valley or the military-industrial complex. It's not all that, you know, super clean. But at that stage in their career, they're saying, guys from your sector, from finance, go into the government to make money for their firm, not to represent the taxpayer. This is driving me nuts. And I, I sense the, what you want to call the values debate, the moral clarity at places like West Point and Annapolis was at a very, very high level. And if you're saying, what's the common good? Yeah. These people who do what I'll call long-term scenario analysis, like exactly. Peter Schwartz's book, The Art of the Long View, National Intelligence Reports, they view their role in life as being stewards. Exactly. That's a great word. And that mindset is very different than what you might call the neoliberal rent-seeking mindset that yes. makes so many people frightened of governments you know, it, now. It, it's funny because I, I love talking to you because I always bounce off of your ideas in ways that surprise me. Um, this idea of being a steward and understanding and serving the common good is so powerful. It's so basic, but it's so powerful. And it's so um, against the grain of the culture right now. Um, and and I, was, I was very interested. I, I was pretty fascinated to come across a little bit of research, some Brookings research recently about how even in the midst of the pandemic, they did some um, surveying across racial lines about optimism about the future. And if you, if you put aside the kind of top 25 socioeconomic percent of the population and, and whites, the middle class whites in general, they tend to be pretty optimistic. But you look at kind of everybody else, black Americans were actually more optimistic and more resilient in the face of what was happening. And I, I called up the researcher and I said, why, did, you know, why is that? I mean, my gosh, these people, a lot of them have been on the front lines and they've had the sharpest you know, point of the, the spear of this pandemic. And she said community. A lot of people, a lot of black communities um, find, you know, they have, be it rooted in a, in a church, um, you know, so, some kind of religious institution, community institution, um, a lot of the kind of deaths of despair type places, that's what they didn't have. That's what they don't have. And actually, even at, with, if you look at religious whites, evangelicalism tends to be about your individual relationship with God as opposed to the serving of a community, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Yeah. Well, I got a little bit long-winded poem I want to read you. Ooh, it, I love it. It, it okay. just came. It's called False Greatness. And this was inspired, which I mentioned at Trento yesterday, by my very high regard for a man named Tommaso Padiascopa, who gave the last speech at the first INET conference. Hmm. He was a former Italian finance minister and, uh, and economy minister before that. And he, he passed away in 2010, and I always encourage people to read his Per Jacobson le lecture 
huh. delivered at the IMF because it, it was echoing. It was 60 days after the INET conference. But he was talking about we need sustainable finance, sustainable resources, and sustainable society. And the parable he talked about was the battle between Croesus and the emperor. Because hmm. he felt that the great financial crisis was the byproduct of the domination of governance by wealth. Hmm. And so when he passed, I had very fond memories. I'd known him for many years. And I found this poem that reminded me of his mindset and was a tribute to him. False Greatness by Isaac Watts. Milo, forbear to call him blessed, that only boasts a large estate. Should all the treasures of the West meet and conspire to make him great? I know thy better thoughts, I know. Thy reason can't descend so low. Let a broad stream with golden sands through all his meadows roll. But he's, a, he's but a wretch with all his lands that wears a narrow soul. Hmm. He swells amidst his wealthy store and proudly poising what he weighs. In his own scale he finally lays huge heaps of shining ore. He spreads the balance wide to hold his manors and his farms and cheat the beams with loads of gold he hugs between his arms. So might the plowboy climb a tree when Croesus mounts his throne and both stand up and smile to see how long their shadows grown. Alas, how vain their fancies be to think that shape their own. Thus mingled still with wealth and state, Croesus himself can never know. His true dimensions and his weight are far inferior to their show. Were I so tall to reach the pole or grasp the ocean with my span, I must be measured by my soul. The mind's the standard of the man. And I, I felt very strongly to this moment mm. that Tommaso embodied the vision, the spirit, and the soul of the kind of public servant mm. that mm. Your, the portrait you're painting today is beckoning yeah. for. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it's just what what matters it's what matters and you know you you had said to me a few years ago we were talking about um some of the capture in government in politics in the economy in both the u.s and china and you said i wonder actually if you would still agree with this that the the big question was going to be which country could best control its elites and i wonder about that I wonder about that, and I, I, I am still an optimist about liberal democracy. But um, I have to say, we we have got we cannot miss this moment. We that we cannot have a post financial crisis moment where we don't get the right narrative and we don't really curb power. If we do that this time around, I think we're we're toast. Um, and I'm I'm trying to. I mean, the column I wrote today was really. One of the things I want to do is is this this debate right now about curbing tech is starting to get dangerously narrow and dangerously complicated. And I think we have to pull back and keep the debate simple and say we have this wonderful new transformative technology 
as we did in the railroad era or when the chip, you know, silicon chip was invented or the computer revolution. And how do we want it to serve society? And what are the basic rules of the road? And then put them in place. And I think we have to keep making it that simple, that quite, we can't get into the kind of, I'm just remembering in the wake of the financial crisis, all of these arguments about tier one or tier two capital and this and that. And it's just, people start to zone out and not care. And that's that kind of complexity and obfuscation becomes a vehicle for power to stay in control. And so I think it's really important to make it clear and about, about clear values right now. Yeah, it becomes a time when expertise can be used as marketing rather than as illumination. And, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think you know, your concerns are very good. You talked about the uh, conversation we had before. I'm reminded, and I, it escapes my memory, the consulting firm that produced the study. But about uh, six, seven years ago, people in China produced a study that said, in America, there's the legislative branch, you know, Congress and Senate, five, 535 people. Then there's the Supreme Court. And then there's undersecretaries and above. And based on all of their filings, that group in a $15 trillion economy was worth $6.5 billion. Hmm. They went to China. National People's Congress, 72 people, a $10 trillion economy, two-thirds the size. And those 72 people were worth over $65 billion. Yeah, yeah. And you probably remember that Wang Shishan, who's now number two in the country, ran what they called the anti-corruption campaign mm -hmm. because they felt in China with their long history of what topples empires and regimes, that the concentration of wealth and power was creating a communist party and a, a National People's Congress that could not serve mm. any longer. And so they trimmed their sails a little bit. Now, have they gone far enough? Is there a threshold beyond which it doesn't matter because money rules? I, I won't be the judge and jury, but it was fascinating at a time that people were talking about money politics in America, that they weren't using the same lens to look at the other, how I say, competitor for being the next paradigm's leader. Yeah, no, it's it's a great it's a great point. Now, I, I have to say I'm still wondering where companies, big multinational companies, are gonna come out on this question. I tell you, you know, I've been going to China for 20, 25 years. And I remember on my first two or three trips, I looked around and thought, you know, this is amazing. They're doing incredible things. And why would anyone ever think that at some point they won't simply say, okay, our system is working for us. We have our own rules. We have our own standards. And rather than fall into line with the existing, um, you know, Bretton Woods, U.S. Anglo-American capitalism style structure. Um, and, you know, I thought that bubble was going to burst after the financial crisis. I think COVID has really made a lot of companies examine their supply chains carefully, start to think about that kind of pressure. I mean, the Xinjiang 
Um, it's, it's fascinating, actually, just to look at how the textile industry has regionalized tremendously in the last couple of years. It was already en route to do that because the whole labor fuel arbitrage is not, you know, doesn't really support those long supply chains for low margin industries anymore. But I've been really interested to see how, okay, you know, your, your customers are now saying, where, you know, are, is this garment being made by forced labor? Um, and those, those questions are going to lead to uncomfortable situations, you know, about are, do you have the same rules? Do companies have the same rules in different markets? You know, Apple makes a big deal about privacy in the U.S. They completely capitulate in China. You, you have to. So, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about in the context of all this, if you look at the last 40 years and you look at who have been the real big winners the, and, have, and have captured the most wealth, it's been the Chinese state uh, and large multinational companies. And I think we've moved into a world where, you know, we know that the Washington consensus is broken. We don't really have a clear Beijing consensus yet that that. <laughs> that everybody wants to follow. Um, we, we have a lot of um, you know, uh, economic mercantilism, but we also have what I would call a Facebook consensus where companies themselves have reached such a level of power that they have control over the agenda. And where they go with that, um, I don't know. I don't know how that ends. I'm, I'm hopeful that we're gonna be able to come up with some ways of remooring innovation and the wealth from, uh, global platform capitalism in values, I think if we can't, we're in trouble. Well, your uh, colleague at the Financial Times and our mutual friend, Martin Wolf, has been exploring for a next book, The Fork in the Road. And I saw your column this morning. What did Yogi Berra say? Yeah, <laughs> if there's a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> well, I think take it in this instance means don't be passive, conflicted, and laid back because this post-pandemic array of technological, financial, climate, migration-related disturbances, the whole question of whether the nation-state can cohere is really a call to action for a reestablishment of confidence, a recovery of confidence, as John W. Gardner's famous book was titled. Uh, he was the Health Education Welfare Secretary as a Republican in the Lyndon Johnson administration. But at the time of all the riots, the murder of Dr. King, the 68 conventions, the murder of Bobby Kennedy, all of those things. And he was quite concerned. He published the book in 1970. But the recovery of confidence, when we consider the taste of what we got the last four years, culminating in January 6th. The stakes mm -hmm. are very high. You've got you to take that fork in the road. You know, we, we've talked a, about so many of the big challenges from climate change to one world, two systems, uh, to the future of liberal, liberal democracy, surveillance, capitalism. Um, I, I sometimes feel that we have a little bit too much of a bifurcated debate um, in our circles, uh, the sort of chattering classes between, all right, we have to either reset to the mid-1990s or we're going to be back in the 1930s. And I actually think there really is a happy medium in between. And this kind of goes back to where we started, this idea that, all right, 
Why are we in this very difficult place? We're here because um, economic globalization ran way ahead of national politics. But now, for a variety of reasons, we have some tailwinds that could, could re-moor those two things. Uh, something that I'm, a couple things I'm looking at are decentralized technology, you know, the possibility of additive manufacturing, the possibility of uh, sovereign-backed uh, digital currencies to, to do much more targeted um, policy on a geographic basis. Just the idea that the place matters is kind of getting through to the economists, you know, is, is a big deal. You know, the fact that we were running models thinking that, you know, 20 years ago, thinking that we could just create jobs and people would move wherever they were, now we're saying, oh, actually, it kind of does matter where you, whether you're in Austin or Georgia or Southern California, and, and let's think about crafting policy that way. Those are all things. I think also post-pandemic, the geographic shifts we're seeing, um, the, the work-from-home trend, the ability to kind of um, not have wealth so concentrated in 12 different cities or, you know, be they in the U.S. or globally, I think those are all really hopeful tailwinds. And it also, gosh, I mean, God bless this administration because they do have their heads down. They are, they're all cycling as hard as they can. And to their great credit, they're not doing too much extraneous talking to the media, which is probably a really good thing. <laughs> it's a good sign. You I don't think. want to trigger your opponents, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think let, let's talk a little bit because you're, you're, piece that was today was about we need common rules and it's there's a very interesting dilemma here there's often been the case or the sense that innovation may have unintended beneficial consequences so if you get in the way of it you may not learn about that which you can't anticipate what they call radical uncertainty there's another dimension which says people who are protecting their own intellectual property rights will try to stifle innovation that reduces their rents and they play an aggressive political game. But on the other side of it, and this is where our friends at CG, who you cited in your second piece, Rohit Madoran and his founder and, and friend uh, Jim Balsili, really talk, I mean, Rohin gave a wonderful talk at a Pontifical Academy of Social Science meeting in Rome a couple of years, about a year, a little more over a year ago. And in it, he said, maybe we need something like the Food and Drug Administration, where we test these things out, learn about the ramifications during a trial period before we unleash them on society. Yeah. Now, one could make the same arguments I made before about the obstruction to the, uh, how'd mm. I say, uh, the process. On the other hand, it's not evident that, how would I say, humans have not become gods. And the idea <laughs> that technology is magic or salvation or deliverance is a bit of a fantasy. But it isn't it's necessarily fantasy. evil either. Most things, what, what was the famous uh, film, The Social Dilemma? And it said uh -huh. essentially uh, all things that mortals experience or whatever, come with a curse, meaning it can be used for good or evil. 
And obviously mm. they were take, flowing down the track of some of the evil in that film, which I thought was very yeah. illuminating. But I, I really wonder, Rana, like this, uh, this inversion between means and ends, markets, technology, whatever, are, are meant to serve people. People yeah. aren't meant to serve them or money or what have you. Well, indeed. And I mean, gosh, you're, yeah, I have so many thoughts running through my head as you speak. I mean, of course, at a deep level, Shoshana Zuboff kind of, kind of wrote the book about the, 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 the deep values question here. Um, and uh, she's really recommended reading for, for everybody. I, I think a couple of things. Um, one of the things that is happening in technology right now, it reminds me so much of what happened in finance around the around the time of the crisis, and I'm thinking about our friend Anad Admati's book, *The Banker's New Clothes*. This idea that when an industry says, "You know, we're really special, and we need different rules because we are fundamentally different and special, and so we can't really play by everybody else's rules," that's that's usually a BS argument. <laughs> you know, it's usually a self-serving argument, and that is exactly. Uh, what the tech sector has perpetrated, you know, for since the mid 1990s, all you have to do, as we both know, is go read Hal Varian's book, Information Rules, and it will lay out to you why these companies are natural monopolies, why they have asymmetries in markets, you know, why why they have a winner take all phenomenon that tends to tends to um, you know create large platform giants that then control 40% of the uh, value of the stock market. So it, it's the the economics is there. But we just have to create, I think the public sector has to just create an even playing field. So one of the things that I think we could do, and, and other um, activists have proposed this as well, is start to set some common ground rules for the gig economy. So for example, you know, we have a big capital labor divide. We're starting to see a little bit of gains to labor because of some of the political forces at work right now. But right, if I go out and, and, and get an Uber right now, I may be charged a different price than you would be or someone three blocks away. The driver has no idea what his, the worth of his labor for three or four other potential providers in the same moment. That is not being collated in one place. Uber owns all the data in its platform. Lyft owns the data in, in its platform. And that's just ride sharing. But imagine if I could, as a citizen, um, offer my labor or offer my, um, my, spend, my consumer spending in an equal transparent platform in which companies would have to play by a single set of rules. I mean, this is what we did at every other uh, point in technological transformation. We eventually created certain gauges for railroads. We made cars go the same direction. We stopped wildcat banking uh, and made it, made all the banks that were you know, putting out their own currency deal in dollars. This is basic. That could go such a long way. And then it would also start to kind of retake into the public sector this commoditization of data and privatization of data, which, you know, this is our behavior as human beings that is being owned and monetized by private companies with absolutely no ground rules. It's, it's that that's that's going to stop. Well, you're I mean, the part there's a little bit learning by doing, but the idea that the service from some of these platforms is connectedness, discussion groups, staying, you know, in touch with your high school friends. But then when they when you realize that you're the product, you never signed up for that. 
And, I, and right. I think there's an awakening going on in that realm right now. 100%. But I don't, uh, you know, the, one of the other things that concerns me, and I think you did refer to this in your article, is the, the way in which the duration of and frequency of signing on to online services is turbocharged by studying yeah. you and telling you what you want to hear. Yeah. And as the social dilemma said towards the end, we're almost like we're fomenting a civil war because they can tell both sides different things to give them greater conviction and like the platform more, allow them to raise their advertising rates. But that, that I don't think that's what, the, how do you say, the population of Earth signed up for. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think they did sign up for it. And again, this is one of those things that the tech platforms try to make very complicated. But essentially, you can think of them all as, as uh, attention monetizers. You know, the idea is to keep us online as long as possible to see what we're doing, including my camera can actually look at my eye patterns right now. It can see if I was looking at a screen, it could see where I was looking, what I was paying for the most close the attention to that that's being combined with my location data um it's it's creating a kind of a digital avatar of me a digital voodoo doll of me that can then be um, pointed in whatever direction is best for the entity that is gathering that data and that's absolutely not what we signed up for i have to say i use social media less and less the only thing i use now is twitter and even that um i have mixed feelings about i've, I've completely um disconnected my Facebook account. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I just don't see any value in it that I couldn't get elsewhere without all the negative collateral damage that comes with it. Yeah. And I think, uh, how would I say when, when people like you leave, other people will leave who are interested in you. You can, you can, I say lead an unraveling. <laughs> well, I think, you know, in some ways, some of the, the, the innovation in journalism right now is about that. I mean, people going to Substack, for example, and writing newsletters um, and and also retaking the value of their own their own labor and their own data. It's um, I think ultimately, if we get the right rules in place, the decentralization possibilities of all this could be quite empowering um, for, for labor. But um Right now, we simply don't own any of the data. It's easiest to it's easy to think about it more when it's something is happening in the physical world. Like I, I think one of the big wake up calls for all this was the um, Google Smart Cities project in Toronto, where you know Google at one point took over um, a 15 mile swath of the Toronto um, uh, public. Air, you know, sidewalks and, and and city streets, and they essentially monitored everything that happened traffic lights, energy patterns, cars, pedestrians, et cetera. Um, and the idea was to create smarter cities, more efficient energy grids, et cetera. But until the city of Toronto came in and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, ah, that's our citizens and their data. Google owned all that. They had it ring fenced. And so when you think about the applications that were going to come potentially from that, who would they be made by? Who would they be owned by? So thank thank heavens the you know the good good people of Toronto finally said you know what we might want access to that we might want to put some limits on what you can do with it and we also might want some other small and mid sized firms not only from 
Canada, but possibly elsewhere to be able to access it. I think that that's more the model we're going to. Well, let me turn to a place that I haven't seen you write about, but it's, it, I think it encompasses some of what you've been talking about today. The question is, to be a citizen, how do you come to understand what is happening in your world? And if you said the platforms are dictating things for their uh, attracting attention, if you say the news media is paying their advertisers, if you say that the arts depend upon corporate sponsorship for tours, and if you say that education is increasingly credentializing. Jane Jacobs, the famous writer from Toronto, wrote a book called Dark Age Ahead in 2004. And the third chapter was called Education Versus Credentialization. Mm. And I listened today, because I was thinking after I read your article this morning about Sir Ken Robinson, who had the most, uh, How Schools Kill Creativity was his, mm. it's the most watched TED Talk of all time. I think it's over 70 million people who watched it. But I listened to him do a long form podcast with Chris Anderson. He passed away last year, but either late 2018 or early 2019, this podcast was made. And he was saying that what we need now is a massive reform of education which has been structured around an outdated model at the start of manufacturing-based assembly line industrial revolution. And now what I'll call service-based knowledge-intensive team creativity and different forms of intelligence. He, he often brings the arts in to the mixture of education. In, in other words, different forms of brilliance. And I'm very concerned, particularly with climate. I've been reading some of the philosophies of Native Americans as I prepared for mm. some climate uh, podcasts. And what's on the curriculum? What are we teaching our children? What are we telling mm. them is important? How are we structuring our society? Are mm. we educating citizens or inputs to production? Mm. Uh, all of these questions make me worry about the quality of the body politic that governance could support. But governance needs to be affirmed when good governance does take place. Um, 100%. And, you know, a lot of the people that are thinking about this, you know, at mid-level ranks in government, really, they are doing God's work. Um, a couple things came to mind as you were speaking about Native Americans and their ideas about nature. I mean, what you're talking about is real cognitive diversity. And that's something that I think we need, we still need a lot more of. You know, we have a lot of talk about diversity, particularly within the university system. It's become, as you well know, a, just a very hot topic. We've got probably the end of affirmative action coming. We've got um, a lot of identity politics issues in in, in universities in general. Um, 
I think we need to focus on cognitive diversity. I was, you know, I wrote recently in one of my online newsletters, um, my colleague Ed and I were talking about the top tier universities and the debate over diversity. You know, my daughter, her father's Iranian. I'm half Turkish. She rooms with two Asian American women, uh, a woman of Indian uh, ethnicity, but they all come pretty much from upper middle class homes, um, have progressive politics, went to big city selective high schools. That's not diversity, really. Um, I saw a lot more diversity, actually, in my daughter's public high school, which um, uh, which you'll know about. It was Bard, Bard, Bard Manhattan, um, uh, which is uh, one of these. And this, this is I really like this new this this model of reinventing secondary school. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about what universities should look like and what community colleges should look like in this country. I mean, univer top universities are going to do fine. There's more demand than there is supply. Um, community colleges are, are problem they're great in some areas, but they're problematic and broken in a lot of others. I think what we need to be doing is exactly what you just said. Going back to post-World War II, we had a big revamp of education. We need that now, and we should do it, I think, at the secondary level and start pushing two years of college into secondary schools, which is very easy. It's being done already. My daughter graduated with an associate's degree. There's plenty of high schools in New York where you can do that. And then you can go out if you want to work, if you need to work. Um, and while you're, while you're um, getting more education, you, you have a blend of the classical and the practical. I mean, I, I'd like to see, and I think we need, um, you know, programmers that think about data ethics and plumbers that think about poetry. I mean, I just... This kind of um, classism and in the meritocracy is about you know who gets who gets to um, be educated in what way is it was really outdated mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. And I think the uh, which am I call I'll go back to John W. Gardner. We have to encourage dissent, not mm. crush it, because th that's part of the nourishment. That's part of the different vantage points, different ways of seeing. And if you are essentially being schooled to be an obedient input to production, you're not being schooled to be a particularly helpful citizen. Educated sheep. <laughs> that's right. What's the gentleman's name at Yale? Deerswitz? Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. That's right. By the way, I believe he has a new book out called The Death of the Artist. And, uh, uh, no, yeah, don't tell me that. Yeah. The theaters are opening up this, this fall. I don't want to think about the death of the artist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that's why I alert someone like you, because you have a platform and an extraordinary imagination. And it allows me to, uh, how would I say, perhaps stir the drink a little bit when I get a chance uh, to well, talk you, with you. you. You've stirred many a drink for me, and you have been a guiding intellectual light and, and a support. So thank you. Thank you, Rob, for, for doing that. And thank you for doing this podcast with me. And, and right. let's keep it up. Well, it's my pleasure. We'll be back again before too much time passes, I'm sure. But okay. thanks for today, and thanks for your articles this morning. Thanks so much for having me. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking 
And I'll know my song well before I start singing.